All right, uh, let me get started. My name's Doug Peters. Uh, I'm a preacher. All right, any, any fellow preachers? Amen. In the room? Okay, yeah. Uh, and uh, that's almost like the beginning of a 12-step meeting. I mean, Doug Peters I'm a preacher. <laughs> Y'all can help me, right? I, I preach at the Grace Crossing Community Church of Christ in uh, Woodlands, Conroe, north part of Houston area. And uh, before that, I was on faculty at Oklahoma Christian University and then preached in the Dallas-Fort Worth area for 13 years in Arlington, Texas at a church and, and some places before that. But uh, uh, I have a wife named Cheryl who uh, sends you her greetings. Uh, she's actually flying in. Um, Got delayed on some things, but she's she's coming to be with me today. So that's a good thing, and I don't have to preach on Sunday, <laughs> so uh, we're gonna hang out a little bit. I have two daughters, Lauren, my oldest daughter, is a teacher, and Elaney is a software engineer. She just got married uh, to a guy from Harding University. <laughs> she was an ACU girl. So I, we're, we're hoping it works out really well. Really He's a great guy. She, she married a guy named John Adams. He always wants you. Well, president of Mary one, right? So, um, I, uh, I also work with Hope Network Ministries, and I want to encourage you to check out Hope Network. Uh, I help lead the Interim Ministry Partners Division of Hope Network Ministries. Uh, if you need to know anything more about that, Grady King just came to the door right there. He's all things Hope Network, and he can he can share that with you. Um, so, so I'm a I'm a preacher. I work with churches. I'm interested in helping churches, uh, but that's not my first career. Uh, my first career was in the electrical power industry. And ever since I was a little kid, I've been highly intrigued with power. Okay, uh, remember those little uh, squeeze the potential well, squeeze the little trigger things and uh, make the race cars go faster around in the ATX circle. Okay, well, when I was young, I used to tear those little engines apart, and and I would work on them so I would win. Uh, and, and I had a soldering iron in the second grade. My mom didn't find out about it until the fourth grade. <laughs> True story. Uh, so I've always been kind of into that, and, and science and math stuff was, was a lot of fun for me. So when I was getting ready to graduate from high school, the electrical company said, hey, why don't you come work for us, and then we'll help you go to school. And when you're from a poor Church of Christ preacher's family, that sounds like a pretty good deal. And so, um, so I graduated from high school on Friday, I think it was. And then on Monday morning, 8 o'clock, I was in the engineering office at Texas Electric Service Company in Wichita Falls, Texas. And, uh, and so I went to school for a while in that and, and did some work in electrical engineering. And then they transferred me to uh, a really unique place. And I have a picture of it here. Uh, Comanche Peak Steam Electric Station near Glen Rose, Texas. It's a, a, a two 1150 megawatt nuclear cores, turbine generator, generate lots of energy, right? Uh, if, you, if you were in Texas back in February of 2021, when all the lights went out and a lot of places off and on, well, this is the only reason right here that your lights mostly stayed on. This, this plant did not go down. The other nuclear plant in Texas, the South Texas Project, uh, near Big City, uh, they went down. This one never went down. It was the sub base to keep power and lights on and heat and that sort of thing in the state of Texas. And so I worked there. I spent six years with that company, and, uh, I, and I was, I, I've always been intrigued with power. I wanted my race cars to go faster. I wanted to make lights come on with batteries when I was just a little guy. And when they said, would you like to work at the nuclear power plant? I was like, yes, <laughs> because I like power. I like power. I like to see things up. Um, now, I did have one bad experience with power, and it wasn't the electrical kind, though. It was with political power. Um, my dad taught me into running for student council president at the end of my junior year. And I did, and we had to give speeches, and then we had to get voted upon, and, and I actually won, I think. <laughs> um, but the first order of business... And, and I was thought, well, this is pretty safe. The president doesn't have to. I read Robert's Rules of Order. I, the president doesn't have to really vote on things. You, if there's a tie, right, and I counted up the people, and of the people in student council, it was, a, it was an odd number. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I didn't factor in the flu. 
And so we had the first order of business was, are we going to change the logo of the student council t-shirt that we have? Okay, at Holiday, Texas, Holiday High School, they had a certain flying eagle. Uh, and then we had an artist that was a, a year ahead of me who drew a fighting eagle. And the football coach got all excited about it. And our helmets, uh, our senior year, had a fighting eagle. It was kind of, you know, a real rough eagle. I should have put a picture up there. Uh, but, um, no, uh, they, they wanted to keep the traditional student council t-shirt flying eagle and even even teachers came to talk to me someone even talked to my mom about your son's now in, and we need to make sure that the student council t-shirt doesn't change um, and, and so again they came to that vote and somebody was sick and I had to cast the deciding factor and to this day the holiday fighting eagles the t-shirt is the fighting eagle okay uh, true story went back Last fall, 40th high school reunion. That's about how old I am. 40th high school reunion, and people were still talking. <laughs> so, um, so I decided early on that, that the political power thing was, was a lot more complicated than the nuclear power industry. And I guarantee you that's the case. When I left there, my boss told me, aside, said, now you're leaving here to go to Abilene Christian College. I said, no, Christian University. He said, I remember hearing about it as ACC. And I said, no, it's, it's ACU. And he said, well, well what are you going to do there? And I said, well, I, I want to be a preacher. He just looked at me and said, you're around the biggest technology and the most power. Um, you're with the smartest people on the planet right here. That's what he said. Uh, and, 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 and you're going to go do that? How boring can it be to work in a church? <laughs> Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So, um, so uh, I decided that kingdom power was where I wanted to spend um, my life. And, and first of all, that applies to me before I ever try to help share it with somebody else. Uh, so there's lots of other things we can talk about power. Sorry, that's a blurry picture. It really looked good, and it said it was a large image when I stole it off of Google. <laughs> um, and we, oh yeah, no power, right? Ooh. That, that conjures up all kinds of things, feelings. Um, okay, so what is Christian nationalism, okay? Now, there's lots of good little definitions. You can Google to your heart's delight all those out there. And what I decided to do is not so much try to Google uh, and give you a definition of that. I, I, I have some statistics <coughs> that I want to share with you. Uh, it comes from the, the PRRI. Okay, the uh, Christian Nationalism Scale, the Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI, in February of this year, um, did a lot of survey. Okay, and so they asked questions like, this is not comprehensive, this is my survey of some of the things they ask. Uh, to what degree do you agree with these statements? The U.S. government should declare America a Christian nation. Some people were adherent, some people were symp sympathetic to that, some people were skeptic of that, some people were rejecting that kind of philosophy. Okay, um, U.S. laws should be based on Christian values. <clears throat> some people adhere to that, some people are sympathetic, some people are skeptical, some people reject that. Uh, if the U.S. moves away from our Christian foundations, we will not have a country anymore. Uh, being Christian is an important part of being truly American. God has called Christians to exercise dominion over all areas of American society. Okay, that's the... The Public Religion Research Institute, February 2023. And so a lot of people, and it was a well-done study, okay? They do good work at this group. And here's what they found out. Uh, I hope you can read some of these. I'm just going to have to turn around and kind of look at them with you. 29% uh, of white evangelical Protestants, people that said they were that, qualify as Christian nationalist adherents. So about 30% said, I'm all in on all those. I'm all in on all those. 30% of white evangelicals said that. Dramatic pause. All right. 35% uh, of white evangelical Protestants qualify as, as sympathizers to that. So more than a third of this national survey 
said, I'm sympathetic. So what that means is, what that means is 29 plus 35, that gets pretty close to 60, that gets pretty close to two-thirds of white evangelical Christian people, as they identify with that, are either sympathetic to or adhere to those things. Almost two-thirds, either sympathetic or adhere to. I read that and I thought, wow, that blows my mind. All right. Um, Christian national adherents are nearly seven times more likely than not adherents, 40% versus 6%, to agree that true patriots might have to resort to violence to save our country. 50% of Christian nationalist adherents and 38% of sympathizers endorse the idea of an authoritarian leader who's willing to break, this is a direct quote, who's willing to break some rules if that's what it takes to set things right. The underlining is for me. To set things right. I've read N.T. Wright. There's, there's something about setting things right in my belief about what God's doing in the world. Well, to set things right, 50% of those who are those adherents, which is about 30% of white Christian nationalists, say that they're willing to do some breaking of rules, if that's what it takes to set things right. 57% of adherents disagree that white supremacy is a major problem in the U.S. These are 57% these are of white, mostly evangelical <coughs> folks. 70% reject the idea that historical discrimination contributes to current challenges faced by black Americans. A very small percentage of that number were actually black. Very, very small. 71% of Christian nationalist adherents support replacement theory. That's what I would call a conspiracy theory. It's a belief that white Americans and Europeans are being deliberately replaced by white, by non-white immigrants. All right? Okay, so just kind of marinate on that for one quick minute. Um, you may not be surprised at those numbers. I was a little taken aback. And I've been, I've been thinking about this for a long time. But that kind of blew my mind. And, and when Mike and I were discussing this, um, I was, I was kind of, you know, like, what, how am I going to introduce this or sort of thing? And, and how do you really define that? And how do you not, you know, make 50% of the people mad when you talk about it or something like that? Um, well, let me just say that, that if indeed this is true, and I believe it to be, it's, it's well done research. I want to tell you that I believe, without a shadow of a doubt, we have a major problem that is growing. It's getting bigger. It's getting more severe in our nation. Okay? Now, I, I, I need to pause here and say, nationalism is not just an American thing. Okay? Um, I've got an acquaintance not really a friend, but we dialogue a little bit, named Michael Bird, who lives in Australia, works at a university down there, does some really good work, and, and, um, and he assures me that, that no, the, the British Empire has and does struggle with nationalism. Okay? Um, they're going to have a little uh, coronation, right? <laughs> On Saturday, right? Uh, and it's going to take place in Westminster, Anybody ever been to Westminster? My wife and I were there not long ago. We went to a, a worship service there. There are more dead people in Westminster. <laughs> I'm buried there. Oh. <laughs> I just, their names are all, if you've got enough money, and you're, you know, and you were a, a member or you were a politician in good standing in the Church of England of some sort, then you can get buried in Westminster. You've got to watch where you step and where you lean. Because <laughs> there's a name everywhere in Westminster. Well, it's going to take place there, right? Um, now, you might say, well, yeah, but, but that's all now just a figurehead, because they've kind of already gone through all that stuff. And, well, I mean, I mean, you know, we, we, we do have this thing called the Protestant Reformation, and we have kind of a, the Western church headquartered in Rome, if I remember my church history correctly, and we kind of had this, this other thing and this Church of England that developed, and, and what are we going to do about a divorce? And well, let's just, You know, there's a lot of power plays that take place there. If you ask William Tyndall, who was a great Bible translator about it, he would tell you, well, maybe that's one of the reasons I was killed. 
was because of some of that. So it's not anything just American. But it is a real American problem. All right, so um, idolatry. Taking, taking something, even something good, and trying to turn it into God, right? That's, that's what I was told at a very young age. That's idolatry. It, it wasn't just bowing down in Exodus to a golden calf, right? That is obviously idolatry, right? Uh, but my Bible class teacher at the Holiday Church of Christ, she said, well, it's more than that. It was my mom. <laughs> she said, it, Doug, it is, it is you taking anything, anything, even stuff that's good and turning it into a God. Uh, it, it's, Doug, it's the kind of stuff that you get uptight about, that, that your emotions come up for. It's the kind of thing you can't quit thinking about. It's the kind of thing that if it were on TV, you would watch it. Aren't you glad it's not? <laughs> um, and so, so I, I will tell you, I certainly believe that, that we have an issue here with idolatry. Um, I think a lot of addictive things are idolatrous. Church where I work is even right now, even today, I was working on it this morning, some more late last night, trying to help somebody who's addicted. And we're actually helping two people right now in our church that are addicted. And that is financial help and it's investment of ourselves. We got ourselves out there, right? We're trying to help. And, and some, some issues came up with that. Um, and, and I won't say her name, but she said, she said it's, it's become my God. And it is meth and alcohol. It's, it's become a, okay. So, as she said, and I know, because I heard you talk about it, that's, that's idolatry. Yeah, yeah. And so, I hope you don't think I'm pushing it a little too far, or stretching it too much to say that, that I, I think about um, nationalism and I think about patriotism, right? A lot of people make distinctions. Well, I, I'm a patriot, but I'm not a nationalist. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I get that. I mean, my dad served in the Air Force. The Peters family made the front page of the St. Louis newspaper because of their sacrifices and the number of medals they won. Of course, when you have a big Catholic family like my dad had, you got a lot of guys to go off to war. And uh, when, when I would hang around my, my German Catholic uncles, uh, it, it was beer and fried fish and talking about the war and what it means to be a patriot. That was a lot of discussion. And, and they were good men. And they gave, and that family, our family, sacrificed in some tremendous ways. And, and, and you know, I'm not going to go back and, and refight the ethics of World War II or World War I or Korea or Vietnam or the Middle East or you pick it, name it. But I am going to say that, that it is a tension between, between patriotism and nationalism. And, and this is probably a really, really, really bad illustration, but I'm going to use it anyway because it's kind of where my simple mind goes. Um, when, I, when I eat Mexican food, I occasionally like to have a margarita. Okay? Now some of you are going to get up and leave. <laughs> um, and, and my wife's a teetotaler, and she, she, she doesn't have that problem. My wife doesn't have that problem. And, and I don't have a problem. I, I go months at a time without ever having one. But occasionally when we go to Joti Garcia's in Fort Worth, but only one. <laughs> I'm here to say, uh, so, so, you know, um, but I have a cousin who can't do that. My cousin is an alcoholic, and, and if I called him today, I almost did this morning just wanted to get his, his voice on a recorder, and I would say, how long has it been? And he'd say, 38 years, six months, two weeks, one day, or something like that. Okay, um, and, and so, so is, it a, is it a sin for me occasionally to have one margarita at Joe T. Garcia's? Okay, I don't believe it is. My conscience is clear on that. I'm careful around who I'm with and that sort of thing. I'm a preacher. I have to be real careful about something. When my kids were younger, I did not. And just us, okay? Um, now, there, there's, a, there's a thing but, you know, called moderation, right? A principle of the scripture, okay? And so, in my simple mind, I'm kind of thinking about um, 
there's a difference between one drink every six months at Joe T. Garcia's and a full-blown alcoholic like my cousin, okay? And, and, and so I, when I think about patriotism, there's a scale there somewhere because, because I am proud to be from America. Uh, when we have the Olympics, I want to win. <laughs> I like gold medals. And we ought to because we're the superpower and we're richer than everybody else and we can really devote a lot of things to it, right? I mean, it, it'd be almost a shame if we didn't get a lot of medals, right? I, I mean, there's something stirs in me and there's some kind of a passion that's there deep within me somehow, some way. I don't know. But, 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 but where does that stop? How, when does that become full-blown nationalism? And so most of us live somewhere in that tension, right? And I think that's okay because you have to live in that tension with alcohol if you're like me. Drunkenness is a sin. Don't be drunk on wine. Be filled with God's Holy Spirit, Paul would say. Okay, somewhere in the middle there, how can we, how can we live in moderation in the nations in which we live? That's what we're kind of trying to talk about today. Jesus came preaching, and his primary message was the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. That's what Jesus was about. Uh, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. This is Mark chapter 1, the very beginning of, of that sim very simple, straightforward gospel of Mark. Proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Okay, That's the primary message of Jesus. The kingdom of God is like... And he told stories. It's, it's like a growing seed. It's like those little mustard seeds. The kingdom of God's like that. It, it can go everywhere. It can seep in to, to all parts of creation. Because God's about this renewal work, right? And, and it's being inaugurated with the coming of Jesus and his life and his death and his burial and his ascension, his enthronement, his, his resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement. We've got to get him resurrected before he can ascend, right? Yeah. Uh, my kingdom is not of this world. Yeah, it is, but it isn't, right? If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. This is John chapter 18, right? And so it's a kingdom lesson right there in John 18. But now my kingdom is from another place. This is a political conversation with a political person named Pilate when Jesus said that. The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. You know, I can't, I can't, I can't just... You know, put it inside a containment building there at the power plant and watch the rods go up and the, the nuclear fission taking place and the power heating up and the turbine generator generating electricity and I can just watch that power go. This is different. This is different. The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, the kingdom of God is in our midst. And, and if it's not in our midst, right, church people, then where is it? And so we're about the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus was about. That's what we're about. All right. Um, I want to read to you a passage. Um, I told you I liked power. One of, the, one of the big things uh, that really uh, consolidated in my mind when I thought about kingdom confusion that we have between nationalism and the kingdom of God in our day and time is, is where do we put our hope and trust? What do we rely on? What's powerful to us? So I started with power. Where is the power, really? And so uh, I want to just uh, hear this. I, I, I did a little Bible gateway search, and I typed in kingdom, and I put a comma, and I typed in power. Okay, because I wanted to see in context where's kingdom and where's power related in Scripture, of course. And, and so one of the passages that I, I want to share with you is, is at the end of uh, John chapter 8. Um, oh, I'll start in, in verse 34. John or Mark? Um, Mark. <laughs> Sorry. Mark. I was going to say, okay, I am in Mark. Um, so Jesus here is, is predicting his death. He's predicting his death. Uh, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel 
will save him. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Keep reading into chapter 9. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And I submit to you, if you keep reading in the, in the Gospel of Mark, the, the kingdom of God has come with power. Okay, Jesus is doing some spectacular things very near to that context. And, and most notably, the kingdom of God comes in that, that death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement, enthronement of King Jesus. And um, he's, he's returning. He's coming to, to completely set things right, although the setting things right process is already in place, right? The new heavens and the new earth that are, that are here but not here yet fully, that are in play, are for disciples to be a part of in the here and now as well as in the future. Okay, we can look at some other texts there, but, but I want to tell you that the kingdom of God comes with power. And so when I left that nuclear power plant and that guy told me, you know, you're going to be a preacher in churches, that's the most boring thing in the world, I'm thinking, uh, no, I, I have a first-hand view of the most powerful people and dwell with God's Holy Spirit on the planet. The most powerful people are not in any national capital. The most powerful people on the planet have the Spirit of God within them. Amen. Now we can talk about power and how that looks and how that gets displayed, right? And we'll do some of that. All right. Um, I want to tell you also, I think Jesus is political, but I also believe Jesus is nonpartisan. Okay? Um, a, a politic, and, and I think it was Lee Camp, who wrote a little book called Scandalous uh, Witness. Yeah, 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 a little white book. Um, I think it was him where I, where I first read this, and this is not a, a quote from him, I don't think, but, but it's where I got the idea. Politic is how we struggle with questions like, how do we live together? Right? How are we going to live together in this earth, together in community? How do we deal with money? How do we deal with violence and evil, stuff like that? How do we arrange our families, our social structures? How are we going to you know, have a way to go? Uh, how is authority exercised, right? Uh, pray for kings and those in authority, I read somewhere in the Bible. Uh, where is all this human history going? What would rightly ordered community look like? Okay? And so Jesus is interested in those things, how you live together. Is Jesus interested in your money? Absolutely. Uh, is Jesus interested in violence? Absolutely. Uh, families and how we, we structure ourselves? Uh, how is authority exercised? The leaders of the Gentiles, what do they do? They lord it over you, right? But not so with you. It's different in the kingdom. Um, where's this going? Jesus has inaugurated something that we're a part of right now. And he is coming to set things right. That same word that was used in that survey I told you about earlier. All right. Uh, by the way, I was, I was thinking about this, and I thought, you know, Jesus really is nonpartisan. Because uh, the, think about the 12 that he got. Okay, so he's got a guy like Matthew, okay? So Matthew is collecting taxes for the Romans, right? Citizen of Palestine, living there in a Roman-occupied territory, collecting taxes, okay? And on the opposite side of the scale from Matthew, you have a guy like Simon, the zealot. You ever, you ever read up much on the zealots? They were kind of the right-wing resistance. How are we going to get rid of the Roman Empire? We're going to do it our way. Matthew's a sellout. He's collecting taxes for them. Simon, the zealot. Okay, well, somehow in Jesus, those two come together. That's a powerful model just in how Jesus assembled the 12. That speaks volumes to me. Uh, I dream of kingdom outposts, we can call them churches, where, where people that have come from a background of Matthew and a background of Simon can find unity in Jesus in one place. Because the most powerful people in the world, those indwelled with God's Holy Spirit. If they can't do it, nobody can. Um, but that's going to require that we learn how to read the Bible upside down. All right, I went ahead and put all that up there. Um, 
you know, it's been said frequently that, that history is written by the winners, right? Whoever, whoever wins and comes out on top and has the money and the power, right, they get to write the history. That's why most history that you read uh, comes from uh, urban centers where the wealth was gathered, where the libraries were, where the educated people were, and not from the countrysides, often places. And this is a really good exercise, but try to go read early church history that wasn't headquartered in, in the cities. And you're going to find a whole lot more diversity of what things look like. I did that on worship one time in a little study that I did, and it was, it was very eye-opening to me. Um, history is often written by the members, except in the Bible, because, because in the Bible, I want you to think about uh, the empires, the nations, the, uh, the empirical forces of Egypt, Babylon, and, and Rome. Okay? Much of Scripture is written from the perspectives of slaves, right? Slaves in Egypt, exiles in Babylon, and occupied or oppressed people in the Roman Empire, such as in your New Testament. And so you've got, you've got Moses in his lifetime and influence and writings there. And then you've got the prophets, right? And you've got exile there. And then you have the New Testament and you have Jesus. Now, most of that history is written from the perspective of the underside. The ones not in the power. It's a really important concept. So I think we need to ask, what... What perspective are we reading from? From what perspective are we reading? What happens when we lose sight of the prophetic and I would say subversive vantage point of the Bible? What happens when we do that? Well, if those on now on top, so if a, if a Doug Peters, who is a, a middle class guy who's educated, who lives in the most powerful nation on the earth, if Doug Peters, that's me, okay, and I'm in the, in, you know, and a white guy in America, if, if, I, if I lose sight of the prophetic and subversive side of that, if I start actually identifying uh, with Israel, then you know what happens? I can read books in the Old Testament like Joshua, and I, I can work myself up into a fury and want to go storm a building or something like that. Maybe I need to learn how to identify not with Israel because I'm in a superpower, but with Egypt, I'm the guy in the Roman villa. He's pretty well off. So what does the gospel say to me? And even those times, even those times when Israel, you know, they weren't always defeated, right? They kind of won some stuff. Even those times when they were on top and things were going really well, I mean, read, read Amos. Uh, there's, this, there's this indictment of, of the uh, aristocratic wives, I guess you might say, in Amos, and he called them fat cows of Bashan, you know? Okay, okay. so, so when things are going good, right, right, and then, then the critique in Scripture actually shifts to the underdog. And so I need to learn how to read the Bible upside down. That will help me. That will help me understand the Bible in context, which I think is a very important thing to do. Put my face down to get my iPad to keep working. All right. Um, so what I want to do is I want you to feel some tension with me today. I, I just, and, and this is, you know, this is just Doug. So I identified some areas, and, and I want you to, uh, to think about these areas. So let's ask the word gospel, okay? Uh, the kingdom of God, well, it's the King Jesus gospel, Right? Jesus is king. When we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' middle name, right? Or his last name. Christ is, is the Messiah. And in fact, I don't even like the word Christ being transliterated. It needs to be translated. The Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, the king. So every time you see Christ, thank the king. Thank the anointed one, the chosen one, the king. He's the sovereign when we say Christ. Okay? And so the gospel is the announcement of a king. Gospel is not just a New Testament word. Gospel was used before to talk about emperors like the emperors in Rome. And a new emperor comes to power in Rome. There's been a bloodbath and a new emperor's on the throne. Guess what? They would send evangelists, literally the term, they would send evangelists out in the Roman Empire and they would announce the good news of the new king. And so that's what Jesus is doing is announcing the good news of, of the king. And it's him. And how he's going to live it out. Now, there's this little messianic secret thing going on there for a while because he's trying to do something along the way. 
But, but the kingdom of a nation has a, either a person of power or a party. Now, there are a lot of nations that have their person of power, right? We know some authoritarian, tyrant-ruled nations, and they have a person of power. And he stays in power a long time, right? And, and so the gospel is this guy is the new guy in charge. He's the guy in power. Now, we, we have parties. and we, we have evangelists that go out and work round the clock. And they lobby so that their guy can get to be on the throne. Or their party, maybe. Their, their platform, maybe, can get to be on the throne. So, so gospel is not a uniquely New Testament word and, and concept. Uh, and the evangelizing of the gospel is not a uniquely New Testament kind of thing. But it's, are we going to uh, evangelize and gospel toward the kingdom of God, or are we going to go toward the kingdom of the empires? That's the big question. And so I just put a little yellow thing in here. Is, is where, where are we on that? What side do we lean to? If I'm putting a scale up there for Doug, looking at Doug in the mirror. Okay, our realm, okay, the, the area, okay, uh, the, the, the kingdom of God is spiritual, but it's also physical, right? You heard Fallon yesterday, right? And it is. Breath and dirt, yeah. Uh, it's also global, right? I mean, God was doing things a long time before anybody ever spoke the English language. Before there was ever a, a constitution or a Washington, D.C. as we know it today. Or, or a London. Or you pick it. God was doing something there. So it's a spiritual kingdom. It's a physical kingdom. It's a global kingdom. Um, kingdom of the nation is... is is physical borders, but, but it's also, and I probably should have put another little thing on there, it's, it's also uh, part and parcel of what it means to be a part of that kingdom, the influence, the sphere of influence that goes with that. All right. Um, documents. Oh, we got to hurry. Um, okay, we, we have scripture. We, we, the Bible calls, Jesus used the term holy scriptures. Remember, remember in John chapter 5, verse 39, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you're going to have eternal life. Yet these are the scriptures that point to me. So you come to me for eternal life. John 5. Okay. Um, Kingdom of Nation will have something like the Constitution, which is sort of based on something like the Magna Carta. You know, so there's some incorporating documents that we have in our, in our social structures like nations. Okay. Uh, and so we, we take this one seriously. Okay, to what degree? Uh, rules, okay? Um, you might could say, well, there's 613, but Jesus kind of says, love God, love others. Let's summarize it that way. Greatest command, second greatest command. Uh, kingdom of nation, uh, it has laws, right? And so, and so we, we have, you know, you've got to have laws. Or, I mean, that's one of the good purposes of government. Read Romans 13. You, you need to have order, orderly society. You need that stuff. Okay, um, agenda initiatives. Uh, I just chose the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it, longest extended teaching of Jesus, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Luke's Sermon on the Plain. Um, we could add that one there. Um, Kingdom of Nation, they have party platforms, right? This is, this is what we're about. We'll publish this. This is who we are. This is our agenda, our initiatives. You see the tension there sometimes? Or those aren't always the same. Which one gets our allegiance? The A word. Um, subjects, okay? Kingdom of God has disciples and voluntary servants. Nobody's conscripted into the kingdom of God. By the way, they're also not argued into the kingdom of God. Uh, a kingdom of a nation, they have, they have citizens, right? And, and they also have conscripted slaves as well, right? Probably oversimplified, but you're getting the point. You feel the tension. Uh, groups, okay, uh, we, have, we have groups we call the ecclesia, the, the church, the churches, local, global, universal. Uh, Kingdom of the Nation has, has ethnocentric groups. A lot of nations are, you know, France, the Gauls, right? I'm, I'm half German, right? So my dad's full-blood German. Family came from there. I've been to Germany. And, uh, and so parties, <coughs> ethnic groups. But, but these, aren't, these aren't divided up that way. <coughs> well, they are, but they're not supposed to be. <laughs> um, leadership, kingdom of God, uh, uh, Ephesians 4. It was he who gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Um, Second Corinthians, 
you're my ambassadors, okay? Um, elected leaders, tyrants, ambassadors, okay? They're, they're elected leaders in some countries, right? That's like ours. We live in a, a democratic republic, a representative democracy in some sense. And so we have elected leaders. Some places just have tyrants. Whoever you know, can fight his way to the, to the head of the table gets there. Uh, but they also have ambassadors that go out on behalf, right? Uh, initiation. Uh, we have this wonderful thing called baptism, immersion. Uh, out with the old, in with the new, in a sense. We, in Romans 6, we participate in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christ the King, the Messiah. Israel's Messiah is now our King. And um, the King of a nation, you're either kind of born into it, right? Or you're, uh, you're naturalized into it. We've, uh, we've been uh, helping a, a girl in our church who's from uh, another country, Hungary, and uh, she passed her test this last week. And we were so excited for Timmy uh, that, that she gets to uh, be a citizen in the same country where her husband is, one of our, our guys at church. And so that's a, that's a really cool thing. Our church just rallied around them and, and helped her do that. And, and, and by the way, not everything over here is bad, right? Some of it's necessary for orderly society to function, right? But, but it is different. It is different. And they're not to be conflated or confused, is my word today. Um, inspiration, motivation. I, I didn't like those titles, but that's the best I could come up with. Um, kingdom of God is, is inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? I read what Peter said in 2 Peter. The prophets spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we, uh, we have the indwelling of the Spirit. We didn't just get the forgiveness of sins. We got the gift of the Holy Spirit when we were initiated into the kingdom of God. We're the most powerful people on the planet. And I almost want to put that P in a quotes because it, like all words, depend on how you define it. Um, a kingdom of a nation, how do they stay inspired or motivated? Well, there's a, there's a sense of national pride. It's usually sort of ethnocentric, right? People like me, something like that. Um, and because of that, we have a sense of belonging. I think that's kind of what gets fired. You know, and then every, every so many years, it seems to me, just looking at history, is you've got to have a conflict so you can keep the, the motivation kind of stirred up a little bit. And, and the corporate memory has to include some of that at times, it seems. My observation could be wrong. Um, allegiance, total allegiance, right? Uh, read Luke 9, read Luke 14. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Lay down your life. That sounds like total allegiance to me, what it means to be a disciple. Uh, kingdom of a nation, now, they're not typically always going to call you to that. And now, occasionally, there will be crisis events, and they will call you to that, right? Um, but it's kind of as needed to further the purposes of the kingdom of the nation. You know, if, 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 if the nation's going to do something big, if there's an initiative out here to do something big, you've got to get the people ready and stirred up. I've got to hurry. Um, unity, uh, spirit, the bond of peace. Ephesians chapter 4, that's our identifier. Uh, kingdom of a nation, national, provincial, party, division, ethnicity. Oh, man, growth. We make disciples of all nations. Kingdom of a nation, power, money, workforce, borders. I think those are generally the areas that we look at whenever we're thinking of kind of growth there. Uh, means of influence. How do we influence? Salt, light, and leaven. Uh, we're not about imperialism, domination, and sanction. Those are the areas where a kingdom of a nation influences Blessings. Um, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor, Luke says. Or the, Matthew would soften it up a little bit there. Blessed is the underside, right? Reading the Bible upside down. Uh, kingdom of a nation. How do their blessings? Their blessings come in the form of security, economy, and freedom. Okay. And, and, and think about it. How much of security, economy, and freedom did the disciples who followed Jesus around Galilee really have? They had a little bit of security. I mean... Romans were going to make sure nobody else could occupy them because we're occupying them, right? Uh, the economy, to some degree, you've got to make things work because they've got to pay taxes. Uh, and, and a limited amount of freedom there, right? 
Paul, Jesus, Peter, they experienced some of that. Not all bad things, but, but certainly different than these things. Uh, sacrifice, deny self, turn the cheek, go to the second mile, persecution, give sacrificially. Uh, kingdom of the nation will call you to sacrifice to either defend or to dominate somebody, typically. Defend yourself or your country, people like you, or dominate somebody else so that we can increase things. And then um, you need to sacrifice by your tax. So we have arguments over the tax code about what to do there. Uh, power, power for others in the kingdom, power over others in the nation. Destiny, the kingdom of God is going somewhere. It's already, but not yet fully here. It's the new heavens, it's the new earth, it's eternity. Kingdom of a nation, <clears throat> It seems to me that all earthly empires eventually fall. That's why I, I read about the Babylonians. I read about the Assyrians. I, I read about uh, the Hasmodean folks. I read about uh, you know, the Egyptians before that. I read about the Romans in Scripture. right? Because, because through time, those things happen. That's just the way it is. Okay, so last thing I want to do, and I'll hurry. I'm sorry I've gone over just a little bit here. I want to talk with you about uh, how we, we, we really get into some uh, ways we can talk about this. I, I'll make this really fast. So, so I want to talk to you about theology and some texts and some tips here. Uh, we really need a strong theology of the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, John 18. We need kingdom eyes. We need kingdom hearts. I want to challenge you. Uh, we need a strong theology of discipleship. I, I'm excited by all the, the stuff I see online and in, in, in the media world about, in the Christian world, about what it means to be disciples and how we're going to renew and some of those kind of things. Uh, discipleship, disciple versus Christian. You know, Christian used three times in your New Testament. Disciple, what, 300 times? We must uh, make the disciple distinction in our churches. Um, we've succumbed to cable news discipleship too often. Uh, so kingdom, discipleship, uh, the nature of the church, the universal nature of the church. We need to go back and read the Apostles' Creed. It talked about the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic not meaning the Roman Catholic, but meaning universal church. Do we really believe that? <clears throat> and then I think we need to go back and, and really consider what it means to, to, to take the gospel seriously. The gospel that Jesus is king and how we're going to announce that in all areas of life. Okay, uh, so some texts that we can talk about. Well, we can sure really uh, talk about all the texts in Isaiah and other places about how Israel was called to be a light to the nations, Right? That's really important. Israel didn't exist just for the sake of Israel. Israel existed for others. Uh, Jonah, read Jonah. That's Hebrew satire is what I think Jonah is. The point of Jonah is don't be like Jonah. Don't be like Jonah. Uh, Amos. Oh, Amos. Lots of things there. Um, Psalm, Psalms. I, I did a series on the Psalms, and I had one whole sermon that it was kind of uh, based around this theme of, you know, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The people of Israel needed to hear that a long time ago, and they still do, God's people do. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, an alternative, upside-down community that Jesus calls us to. The Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Luke's Gospel. Remember Luke chapter 4? Jesus goes to, to Nazareth. He's, he's going to teach at the synagogue. He pulls out uh, some skeletons of, of Israel's closet about these Gentiles who God works in their lives. And, and instead of patting him on the back, saying, isn't that Joseph, the, the builder's son? Now he's pushed off a cliff almost. All because he messed with their nationalistic pride. Acts chapter 10, I now realize that God doesn't play favorites. Peter on the roof having a little drink, looking out over the beautiful Mediterranean. The sheet comes down. Cornelius, yeah. Uh, Acts 15, uh, how Jewish do Gentile converts need to become? We've got to get together. We've got to have a little meeting. Uh, verse 28, seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us that we live within this tension, but let's don't, let's don't sell out the gospel. Let's, let's don't tear things up, but we're not going to allow that to dominate us. And the book of Revelation, I, I'm, I'm not going to get anything here more other than to tell you, by Scott McKnight's commentary on Revelation, the name of it, Randy, is? Revelation for the rest of us. Revelation for the rest of us. The Alameda Church of Christ in Norman, Oklahoma, where Randy's a minister there, had McKnight come in and do some stuff there. I've got it here in my backpack. Um, 
I think. This is some great stuff. Uh, I preached a series on uh, Revelation, the, the letters to seven churches, and I didn't have that because it just came out. And I did the series back last fall. Um, man, 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 a book of Revelation. Okay, some, some real quick tips. I think it's possible to be nonpartisan. And part, nonpartisan doesn't mean you have to be non-participative. I think in our divided society today, if you're a Christian leader and you're a partisan, that's a problem. By the way, in James chapter 3, there's this description of wisdom from above versus wisdom from below. And I did a little word study on those words, the wisdom from above, wisdom from below. Wisdom from above are things like pure, peace-loving, submissive. Wisdom from below is selfish ambition and evil desires and things like that. Well, guess what? All of those things on the wisdom from below were used in the common political discourse in the Roman Empire in the Greek language. Wisdom from above, wisdom from below. That's James chapter 3. So that'd be, that'd be a great text to point out that difference there. Um, you know, I don't think you have to be a David Lipscomb totally, who, who was like, oh, I have nothing to do with that. You know, I, I think you can be nonpartisan and still participate in, in a Christian way. And I tried to give you some, some tensions to live within to do that. Uh, here's another tip. Watch your language, okay? Uh, here's, here's, what, here's words I've not said thus far today. I've not said Republican. I've not said Democrat other than to describe a dem, uh, Democratic remo- uh, representative's democracy but I've not used it as a political party. I've not said Trump. I've not said Biden. I didn't do any of that today talking about this. I talked about the kingdom of God and discipleship. You can do that. That's that's what we have. That's what part of what the Spirit has given us to give us the power to be God's people in the here and the now. So watch your language. Be real careful about that. And then the last thing I would tell you is I encourage you toward consistency both in your private life and your public life, and that's just maturing as a leader. If you're like me early on, you were kind of one way around these folks and another way around these folks, and, and figure out how to live consistently. I'm going to ask you to be standing. I want to read one passage of Scripture, and we'll be done. Okay, uh, at our church, when I read the Word on Sunday mornings, I have everybody stand out of respect for the reading of the Word, and then I always say at the end, this is the word of God, and our church all says, and we believe it. So, so make me feel like I'm at home, because I'm going to say, this is the word of God, and you're going to say, and we believe it at the end. Okay, all right. Um, from Paul's writings in Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of King Jesus, Christ Jesus, the chosen Jesus, the Messiah Jesus, the anointed Jesus, the King Jesus. Your attitude should be like the king, Jesus, who in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him, exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus the King is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. This is God's word. We believe it. I hope we do. Blessings. Thank you. Thank you.